Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Bridget. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. So, so October, October 5th, 2016. If you had been watching the preview slides, you recognize that tomorrow is Hero Day in Hanover. So, um, so wear your capes and do heroic acts and flash mob in front of Marana Gelato at 6 o'clock tomorrow evening. And we are not quite 10 days away from the hero. And I, I have some updates. Maybe next Wednesday I'll share which, which Chad teams are in the lead in terms of fundraising thus far. <laughs> Actually, I know who it is. It's the Champions Against Child Abuse right now are in the lead. So, so you have time to catch them. The residents, I think, are in third place. So um, I should share those numbers. But today's a special Grand Rounds. It's part of, um, it's part of a humanism in medicine um, initiative uh, started by the American Medical School Pediatric Department chairs about 12 years ago this month when Columbia Pediatric Chair John Driscoll urged uh, members to honor October as Humanism Month with Grand Rounds or other local programs to uh, recognize the important role of humanism in pediatric education. Uh, his intent was to honor the memory of Stephen Miller uh, from his faculty and Richard Sarkin, both of whom had died in a plane crash on October 19, 2004, on their way to deliver a Grand Rounds presentation on humanism and medicine. Stephen Rich, who had both been presidents on the Council on Medical Student Education and Pediatric Comcept, which Kim and Todd and Adam uh, and Allison have been very active in in our department, had attended a conference on humanism and medicine back in 1996, 20 years ago, sponsored by the Arnold Gold Foundation, uh, which uh, we know also sponsors the white coat ceremony that some of you attended at, uh, at the chapel on, uh, at, um, uh, for Geisel on Saturday morning. I did. It was a lovely ceremony at Rollins Chapel. Inspired by that presentation at the Gold Foundation, they proposed a traveling fellows program that became the foundation's traveling fellows, unfortunately, until their crash and their demise. In their many presentations at local and national meetings, Stephen Rich gave voice to promoting attitudes and behaviors we all aspire to, but too often take for granted. And Dr. Driscoll's modest proposal helps honor the memory of those colleagues, but does more. It does much more. It helps us find our own voice and carry on their important work of promoting humanism in daily clinical and educational activities. And so our Grand Rounds Committee has, has taken up the charge uh, admirably to uh, find an appropriate Grand Rounds presenter every October, and, and to that, uh, our member, our co-chair, Charlene Nett, is going to introduce today's Grand Rounds speaker. Uh, so I definitely prescribe to the Sean Ralston School of Short Introductions. Um, I want to give Blythe enough time to speak. So um, Blythe Lord is, I'll tell you briefly, trained at Yale and Harvard, a very intelligent woman. Um, she trained in technology and education, and so she was sort of perfectly poised um, to take that training and then her inherent incredible compassion and channel it into a, a couple of areas that I think are pertinent for her talk today. One is the development of um, this program, the C 
Courageous Parents Network, and the other is serving as the um, uh, Family Advisory Council to the AAP. So um, I'll t let her tell her story, because I think that's part of what she wants to say. Um, but what I want to say about her is that she's this really bright, energetic woman and who understands as we all need to understand that when we take care of children, we're taking care of their hearts and their souls and their families and their minds and not just their bodies. Um, and that's something that she helps us do all the time. And so I really am excited that she's here. Um, we had a lovely dinner. She's an incredible woman and she's going to be able to stay around a little bit. So if anyone wants to come and talk to her, we'll take a tour. Um, so that'd be great. And I really encourage people to take the information you learn and to just spread the word because this is an incredible resource for families. So thank you, Blythe, so much for coming. Okay. So is is this working? Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation to be here. I have come only from Boston, so uh, it was a nice opportunity to drive north because we're not having any color yet in uh, Boston, and the drought is also not helping with that. Um, this is obviously a beautiful time of year to be here. Um, and I appreciate the invitation, especially in the context of humanis humanism and medicine, because I think this is a lot about what drives me. I should tell you, I'm not, I have no medical training whatsoever. I'm not a doctor, a nurse, child life specialist, nothing. Um, I come to this from my own personal experience, which I will now share with you. Um, I have no... Uh, nothing to disclose of any financial relevance, sadly. <laughs> um, my story begins in 1999 when my nephew Hayden there in red was diagnosed with the rare and always fatal still disease Tay-Sachs. It's um, a genetic neurological degenerative condition. Um, one month later, his first cousin, my daughter Cameron, at age six months, was diagnosed with the same disease. So we were four parents with two children in one family who were facing the impossible. A year and a half later, my husband Charlie was with his brother Tim at Hayden's bedside. Hayden was dying. I was home with Cameron, completely terrified. Terrified for my brother and sister-in-law, who I knew had to watch their son die, and terrified for my husband and me, who I knew had to do the same soon enough. And I have a visceral memory of that feeling. I was so scared that I felt that I was glass and I was going to shatter. And then the phone rang. It was my husband, Charlie, calling to say that things were peaceful, that Hayden was comfortable, that my brother and sister-in-law were okay, and that we were going to be okay. And in that moment, the worst of my fear and anxiety dissipated and everything shifted, and I was able to live and breathe into the last five months of my daughter's life. I knew that if they could do it, we could do it too. And we were okay. And I think we were okay for three reasons. First, we traveled that road with my brother and sister-in-law. That's my husband and his identical twin brother and our, their two, our two children together. Um, we were not alone. My brother and sister-in-law led the way. We made really, really challenging decisions together about our children's care, such as whether we were going to go with a feeding tube or not. We made those decisions together. Um, and they also led the way to end of life, and they showed us what it looked like and helped me see that we could do that. 
We also receive pediatric palliative care, not from a palliative care specialist, but from our daughter's primary care pediatrician, which is a subcurrent of my message all the way through whenever I talk, is that the basics of palliative care is just primary care pediatrics. And he brought this to every single interaction that he did with us, and he remained her lead doctor, even as he brought her a neurologist um, to help with um, uh, her seizures, and we had pain management at the end of her life. He was her primary care doctor all the way through and practiced palliative medicine all the way through, um, and that made a tremendous difference. And thirdly, we received grief counseling um, and uh, from the point of diagnosis on, which helped us really process and understand our experience and our grief, um, and we understood what anticipatory grief was, um, so that by the time my daughter died, we really were, um, a huge amount of healing had already happened, which helped with the grieving that followed, um, so that we didn't, those three elements really helped us not have, for lack of a better word right now, um, complicated grief. Unfortunately, what was true for us, I have seen, is largely not true for the majority of parents who are caring for children with life-threatening illness. Um, I've spent the last 15 years working with these families, um, inspired by my own, and um, what I see is there are three primary obstacles to families getting the sort of help that my husband and I had and which made all the difference. Number one, and I'm sure you see this in your work, especially that you are in a rural state, um, these parents are isolated. Unlike my husband and me, they don't have another couple in their family with whom they're journeying. And um, most family and friends simply cannot relate to the psychological, social, and emotional issues that these parents are going through. And these parents feel very alone. Secondly, it is very hard for these families to access uh, professional resources to help them cope, psychosocial. A lot of these resources are provided in the hospital, and most of these families would rather not come to the hospital. They also often cost money, and oftentimes these families don't have the resources to get it. And third, um, the majority of these families are not receiving pediatric palliative care. This is changing, this is a big piece of work. People still confuse palliative care with hospice and end of life and they're not referring families to palliative care in a timely fashion. They're waiting towards the end instead of helping introducing these families to palliative care wherever possible at the time of diagnosis. Um, And so these families, also these families don't know what palliative care is so they're not asking for it. So I, uh, 13, 15 years after, well, it was more like 14 years after my daughter died, as I was, was, I'd come out of the grief cave and I'd taken stock of how well my husband and I were doing and I wanted to see about bringing those things that had helped my husband and me to families that are going through this today. And um, I have a background in video production, web design, distance learning, and so I sort of bundled it all together and I founded Courageous Parents Network. We are a web and mobile platform that supports and empowers parents caring for children with serious illness and meets them where they are with what they need around the psychosocial and emotional issues that attend serious pediatric illness. We are not about research treatments. 
um, anything like that. Um, we don't do symptom management, nothing that's specific to the disease. Um, we, uh, we bring parents, uh, I, we, the, the parent voices are a critical piece of what we offer, which I'll show you in a moment. Um, so first, uh, to counter the isolation that parents feel, we bring them in, into fellowship with each other. We have over 300 videos um, introducing podcasts, a blog, and a forum that bring the personal voices of other parents who have gone before or who are on that journey today to parents um, on their phone or um, at their, on their laptop. Um, in these videos, and you'll see some of those, parents who have gone before share their experiences, wisdom they have gained, and they basically show parents that they are not alone. And in hearing the stories of others, we hope parents can find their own way. Secondly, we bring um, our videos include the professional guidance of a child psychologist, a nurse practitioner, a social worker, a chaplain, and two palliative care doctors talking about the landscape and sort of framing some of the issues that parents front, confront in an effort to normalize and validate what they're experiencing. Um, also, we have some downloadable guides around coping with working with the medical team, navigating the hospital, tending the marriage, caring for the other children. I see your child life specialist taking care of the other children in the families, um, talking to them about serious illness. Um, all of our content promotes palliative care uh, gently so that families understand what it is and how it can benefit them. And we provide concrete examples so that families can ask for it. And we have some success stories of families learning about palliative care from our website and going and asking for it where they live and being in a place in a hospital that offers it and finding that it has made all the difference in their family well-being. And finally, because we're web and mobile, um, families can access it 24-7 wherever and whenever they need it at no cost, um, including in the middle of the night, which is often where all the scary stuff marches in. Um, our content is organized by themes so that families can find what it is they need based on wherever it is. There will be some newly diagnosed families who only want to hang out in the diagnosis space, but some who, if their child's been given a diagnosis from which it is possible they will die, such as, well, in my case, Tay-Sachs, from which it is certain, or San Filippo syndrome, or SMA type 1, for example. These are conditions that always, at the moment, sadly, end in early death. And for those, well, I mean, we're splitting here. Um, those, there will be some parents there who might want to go to look at the end. Some people might not want to go there at all. But for those who do, we give them a glimpse into that. Because what we know is that the worst thing is fear. And if we can deactivate the fear, um, and give people a glimpse, shine a light. I say shine a light on the, some of the dark and scary places. We can help parents see what it is that they are, see their way into their journey. But this is all self-directed. So for the family who doesn't want to even look at this, they don't have to. Um, all of, within those super themes, we chunk it. Um, we, worked with a child we worked with a family psychologist to really organize our content based on how families think about these things. I, of course, am a parent, and I spend a lot of time with parents. So I've done work just based on my own travels with these families. But then this expert psychologist said, you know, she, we, we did this together. So families worry about the losses along the way. We know we want help families to encourage them to find support, uh, issues of control, working with the medical team, Christ, issues of faith and spirituality. 
um, what to do when you have a long indefinite timeline and you don't know how this is going to go down. We have stuff on that too. Um, this is when this is an, under one of our other themes, uh, other topics of uh, anticipating end of life. Um, we actually go there. So if you want to talk about what is my life going to be like after my child dies, or hear other people talking about that, you can go looking at anticipate being bereaved. Um, if we have a mother who talks about talking to her child, um, who's, her daughter had cancer, and she spends, we did a long interview with her um, talking about how her, she and her daughter talked about what her daughter wanted for end of life, including uh, her coffin and her service and where she wanted to be buried. So we have a mom talking about how she talked with her nine-year-old. Um, then we have parents talking about what it's like after their child has died. So families can see that you are, haven't dissolved into a piece of nothing. Um, my big thing was uh, after my daughter was diagnosed, the person I wanted to talk to most was not my brother and sister-in-law because they were only a month ahead of me. They couldn't really tell me that I was going to be okay after my daughter died because they weren't there. So I asked, I said, I want to talk to another family whose child has died from Tay-Sachs disease. I want to see them. And fortunately, there was a family in Rhode Island. So two weeks after my daughter's diagnosis, we drove down to Rhode Island and met with this family. They were still married. They had another child. They clearly were still loving and tending to him. They had clean hair. Their house was tidy. They looked like they were okay. And they gave, I mean, they were okay. They were okay. And I was like, okay, I, I, if they can do it, I can do it too. Um, so for those families, we model what the future, that you, you can be there in your future. Um, as I said, we also have downloadable guides um, around topics such as helping siblings cope, tending the marriage, self-care, helping families understand what anticipatory grief is. This is proven to be an unexpectedly hot topic. Um, parents, it oftentimes... It's really helpful to name these things for families, what your feeling is. This is typical. This is normal. So parents don't feel um, that there's something dysfunctional about them. Why am I so angry? Why am I so weepy? Why am I such a wreck? And if you say what you're experiencing is anticipatory grief, they, I've seen this. They go, oh, that's what this is. Um, a lot of people think, my child's still alive. Why am I such a wreck? Why am I so sad? Why am I grieving my child's alive? Well, you're grieving the future your child isn't going to have. Um, uh, are we, the parents we interview and that are featured in our videos, some of them are single, some of them are married, some of them are divorced, uh, all socioeconomic levels. Um, uh, as I said, we are disease agnostic. Uh, and some of our families are bereaved, and some of them are still actively caring for their children. Um, we also have content on it to help families think about advanced care planning. Ideally, all of this would be done in conjunction with your child's uh, medical team, certainly, but for those families who want to get a head start or are wondering what the framework is for thinking about this, we've got information on that, um, and in fact, there are also some families and places, sadly, where this sort of support isn't happening and these sorts of conversations aren't happening. So in the event a parent wants to a little help and might be able to prompt it with their doctor or their um, social worker, they can, we sort of give them a framework. 
and this was adapted by the head of palliative care at Mass General Hospital for Children from Dr. Atul Gawande and Susan Block's uh, serious illness checklist that they are developed at Ariadne Labs. Um, I'm going to show you a quick, so how this is going to go is I'm going to give you a quick flavor of the videos, and then at the end you can show, I, you can, I'll say what are some other videos you might want to look at, and then we can talk about it. So this will give you a flavor for the content. This is sort of a, a hodgepodge. Oops. Is that loud enough? hit something. I was trying to turn the volume up. Oh. Oh, sorry, guys. Here. We have at the moment about 2,000 vis unique visitors every month, and uh, our community on um, Facebook, Twitter is growing. Our primary referral source is providers such as you, because you guys are the gatekeepers to families, but it's also spreading family to family, which is gratifying. This 2,000, uh, we're very happy with this number, but it's only a fraction of the families who would be, we, who are sort of eligible <laughs> um, for this support. And so we have big dreams for reaching all the families in the country and then beyond once we change language, once we translate into other languages. At the moment, we are entirely in English. Um, so here are some of the things that we're learning. 
First, as I touched upon earlier, the importance of naming things. Um, and I don't mean pathologizing things, just naming them. Um, so when you help families, parents understand what it is or caregivers understand what they're going through, and it validates and normalizes and it relieves the burden to change that which cannot be changed. Um, and I love this email we received from a mom. I'm so glad I found your group. I have all of these mixed feelings about my child, the future. I saw a few of your videos and I learned about anticipatory grief. It was comfortable to learn that what I am feeling is a normal thing. Thank you. Um, as, as you can probably imagine, the quiet, unspoken things, the worries, become very, very burdensome. And so it's not just about the logistics of taking care for, of these children. It's just, it can just be about the little micro that's running on in, in the back of your mind. And if there are things that we can do to shut those off or open them up, um, that's what we want to do. Um, this is from a mother uh, who was very engaged with Courageous Parents Network. Uh, her daughter, Emerson, was diagnosed with Gaucher disease. They live in Burlington. They were seen by UVM, they were seen at UVM, um, but they were also seen by the palliative care team at Boston Children's Hospital where her G-tube was placed. And that team at Boston Children's referred her parents to Courageous Parents Network. Um, the mother, Sarah, was very active with us and even participated in our live parent education series, which was a virtual, uh, virtual meeting once a week for four weeks with our child, like with our psychologist. They, every week was a different theme. They met by phone. One week was on tending the marriage, one was on taking care of other children, one was on self-care, and one was on, on anticipatory grief. And uh, the mother participated in that phone support group, basically. And shortly after it ended, her daughter, Emerson, died unexpectedly. Um, and she sent this note. Um, and for me, this notion of helping them not just get through, but actually embrace Emerson's journey, as hard as it was, is exactly what Courageous Parents Network is about. Because we can't change, none of us can really change the outcome of the disease, but what we can do is change how parents go through it, and how siblings go through it, and how the child, him or herself, goes through it. And as good as we can make it before has such an impact on how the family remembers <coughs> after. And the legacy of the child's life um, is all families have after, right? They have the memories. And it, to the extent that we can help these families make meaning, um, it really changes the way they remember, which in turn helps the siblings. Um, and I know and I'm sort of living proof of that, I guess. Um, uh, so of particular interest to you, perhaps, is uh, the application for medical education. We, this was unanticipated. We, everything we produce, we produce for parents. But we have a very active professional advisory board, and they have been using our videos with residents and interns um, for continuing medical education. Well, not continuing, for, for education. They find that our videos are, provide a very, very um, privileged glimpse, they say, they use that word, into the lived parent experience, which you don't always get to see when you're seeing families in the hospital. Um, 
families are not always at their best in a crisis situation. Um, there's certainly your crunch for time. You don't always have an opportunity to hear what's really going on beyond the crisis that's confronting their child. And so our videos where you have families talking about religion, the other children, self-care, what it means to deal with the annoying relative who isn't showing up, these, all of these things come up and help um, uh, sort of provide a deeper understanding of what's going on for these families, um, which can inform, in turn inform um, the care you provide. Um, so and on that note, as last, winter, last December, Partners Healthcare released a continuing medical education module on end of life in pediatrics. Uh, using all using six of our videos, which was very gratifying. Turns out in the state of Massachusetts, we're manda it's mandatory that pediatrics, you have training in end-of-life care and pediatrics. At Mass General Hospital for Children, all of their training was on end-of-life in adults, and so their pediatricians were taking this class on end-of-life in adults, which I think you can see is not really as relevant as... <laughs> so they made, they made one on end-of-life in pediatrics and used our video. Um, and this is uh, hospitals across well hospitals across the country, but especially in Massachusetts, where our network is most intense, have been adopting um, Courageous Parents Network both as a referral to the families they are caring for, but also in um, medical education. And Dr. Bateman, who's at UMass Memorial, said, "Our trainees and staff have been able to learn such valuable lessons on doctoring, caring, and being present." with access to these parental perspectives. Um, and Dr. Pat O'Malley, who's on our professional advisory board, she's at Mass General Hospital for Children, and she says much the same thing. Um, I have seen how each practitioner finds their own humanness and connection in these powerful parent stories and can take away a different understanding that helps them become better, more compassionate, and more effective caregivers. Um, so I hope you will take some time to explore our site. As I said, it's available 24-7. Um, and uh, look at the parent videos. It's at CourageousParentsNetwork.org that you will refer families that you think would benefit from it. Um, one thing I haven't mentioned here is that one of the ways that uh, our providers are using Courageous Parents Network in their work directly with families is they're, in addition to referring them to Courageous Parents Network, they're using them as a way to prompt difficult conversations. So for families who might be needing to transition um, to comfort care or making difficult decisions around the spinal surgery or a feeding tube or tracheostomy, rather than just launching into this very difficult conversation, especially if the family is resistant, um, the doctor or the social worker is saying, here's Courageous Parents Network. They have some videos on this topic. Why don't you go watch and see what some other parents have, have to say, how some other parents have thought about it, and then we can come back and discuss. And I think, what's, I think one of the reasons why parents, what's proving to be effective is that it's a lot easier to talk, to start by talking about somebody else than to start talking about yourself. So you might say, I don't agree with what that mom said. And then you, as the provider, can say, why not? And then that begins 
a conversation. Because with all of our content, there's no judgment, there's no recommendations, there's no editorializing. It's just here, this is what this family has, has to say. This is what this mother has to say. Caveat, all of our content is reviewed by providers so to make sure it's not going to be upsetting or disturbing in any way that will derail a parent in that moment. Um, but it, so we, our only editorial agenda, which is gentle, is quietly promoting palliative care. The, the principles of palliative medicine, um, I should say. Um, so I hope you will take some time. And now we can go look at some. Uh, what, what time is it? Oh, we've got gobs of time. Good. Okay, so what I would love to do is choose a video, watch it, and then get your thoughts on it. And you guys get to choose. Um, and we have time for more than one because these are each about two minutes. So the first one, Joy and Bruce, they were, when we interviewed them, they, were in New they live in Vermont. Now they live in Iowa. Um, but their daughter, Cora, has trisomy 18. So we could go listen to them. Jennifer and Stuart, their son, Ben, had San Filippo syndrome. He died shortly before his 18th birthday. Paula is the mother whose, da whose daughter, Lydia, had cancer. She talks about having the conversation with Lydia. And Janessa, who um, her son Alex is 12 years old and has SMA type 1, and she talks about the decision by which she made to whether to give him a trach or not. So where should we start? Trach or no trach? Trach or no trach? Okay. Okay. <laughs>
So just quickly, um, we also have, we also interview a family whose um, son had SMA type 1 who elected not to get a tracheotomy. So again, we don't have any agenda, but we show, we try to keep it very full spectrum. So it doesn't look like we're only quietly promoting something. Um, so what did you think of that? First of all, thank you for sharing your story and your wonderful resource with all of us. Um, it's fantastic. Um, I really love that, um, that you use videos, particularly for families who have low literacy level and can't sort of absorb um, written information um, in that way, and it's really, really powerful. And I, um, uh, I think this decision um, of, um, you know, we do a lot of shared decision making, and we want, family, we want to empower families to feel like they get to make the choice. But I feel like very often um, families turn back and like they say, what would you do? Or you know, they, they do a something because they want to be relieved from that choice. Um, and I wonder um, if you have sort of your own perspective or family's perspectives about, that can help to inform us about how much shared decision making to do and when to, when to sort of, um, how to use judgment of when to pull back and actually give a recommendation um, and how to help families so they don't, I mean, she, she basically said, what I heard her say is, I didn't make this choice, so it, it's okay. It was okay because I didn't make this choice. Um, and um, anyway. That is such a fabulous question because it captures how hard your job is. My job is easy. I just go interview families and say, tell me how it feels to be you. And you guys have to <laughs> help them. It's just so, I mean, I'm, I'm joking. I am also always trying to help them. But I think one of the most challenging things about what you have to do is how to hold the space with families and know when the, when, what, how to balance 
that, like, how to advise them versus just let them hear what they are thinking themselves. And in those moments when they don't know what to think, um, how tricky that is. You know, I never, ever said to a doctor or a social worker, what would you do if this was your child? Because I never, that was not how I thought about it. But I know families who do like to say that and they want to be told what the doctor would do if it was their child. So for me, if a doctor had said, well, if it were my child, this is what I would do, I would have wanted to punch that doctor in the face. But for another parent, they want that. So I, I think it's like you have to spend time with them and ask them questions and then come at it through a different way. Like, what are you worried about? Who, you know, ask questions that go around the issue and are not right on the issue and hope and that by doing that, see what that um, brings out of them. Um, and showing them other parents who, having them talk to other parents and find their way. I mean, we, with, for us, we, um, having my brother and sister-in-law go through it, we were able to really hash out whether we wanted to do a feeding tube for our daughter, and in this case, my, my, my nephew, too. And we ultimately elected not to do a feeding tube, but that came through a lot of conversation, and I think as many opportunities to, um, to, to talk about it. Um, that was, that's the best I've got. I think it's hard, too, for families who have a lower health literacy level. Yeah. But it, it, it's hard to know if they're saying, I don't actually understand yes. the ramifications yeah. of this, or to try to, to try to like tease out those pieces. Well, I, I do think videos are a very effective way, because it doesn't burden them in that moment to be actively engaged in a conversation. I mean, sort of countering what I just said in terms of helping having parents talk to other parents. That can feel very burdensome if you're not in the mood for a conversation, because if you're in conversation, you have to <laughs> talk back. Um, whereas just watching other parents and seeing videos of, um, on our website, you see later Alex, he's 12, in his home, in his room in the basement with the equipment and the setup, and he's being loved on by his siblings. But you have to, as a parent, imagine, could I do that? And we have the mom talking about how she takes, you know, when the tray comes out, she puts it in and what it's involved when they go on trips. So she, she's talking about it and, you know, basically it's a light on this situation and then maybe families can sort of see. Um, I do think the key is to just say there's no wrong answer. Um, I, the, um, there's no right thing to do, so there's no wrong thing to do. Uh, when... Um, I remember when we were working with our uh, grief counselor during my daughter's life, I was so afraid I would make a decision that I would come to regret. I mean, I, my fear of regret was so big. And she said, um, I believe that if the, you make the best, if in the moment you make a decision based on the information that you have in that moment and time to be thoughtful and reflect, then you will not regret it later. So as long as you feel like you're making the best decision you can in the moment with the information that you have, you will not regret it later. Yes? Something you just said. First of all, let me thank you for this very thoughtful and inspirational presentation. Uh, but something you just said reminded me to ask you, do you have any information of how many siblings 
use your website? I know it's focused on parents, but do older siblings go here? I don't know about older siblings going here. And that is something we are wanting to build out. We have a section on siblings uh, directed at parents. However, I also, prior to starting Courageous Parents Network, did a project called the Rare Siblings Project. If you go to Rare Siblings, I think it's raresiblingsproject.org, it, it's not dissimilar from this. It features videos of siblings talking about having a child with serious illness, and I can show it to you, having a sibling with serious illness. So you get these 10-year-old, uh, 8-year-old, 11-year-old, 15-year-old siblings talking about their experience. Um, they, I think there are five sibling sets, as well as their parents, but five sibling sets in interviews talking. It's, they are amazing. They are amazing. It's called raresiblingsproject.org. We did, I did it with the National Taste Acts Association with a grant from Genzyme. Uh, it's not only, uh, it's, you know, Taste Acts GM1, leukodystrophy, I think there's cancer. Anyway, you'll, it, I mean, and again, it's not about the diagnosis. It's about the, what it's like to have this sibling. There's one boy, Alex. I was telling this to Shuleen last night. Um, there's one boy, Alex, who talks about how they live in a tiny little house, and he just hates all the medical equipment. He hates it because there's no room in his tiny little house because his sister's crap is all over. You know, that's just pretty dear. Um, okay, anybody else want to talk about the, the trach video before we look at another one? Oh, yes. Can you search your site, like just put in the word trach or G2, mm -hmm. feeding tube, mm -hmm. into these videos? Mm -hmm. it'll, show you, it'll show you the list. Um, just so you know, there's so much more we know we have to do. So you might put in a search and nothing comes up. And I'll say right now, I'm sorry. We're just we're trying to move through. Um, and I hope you'll take my card. I have a lot of cards because I would love to hear from you about, could you please produce some content about X? Um, and some of the ways we're doing that, in addition to interviewing families, is we are interviewing medical providers who can talk about X. So for example, we, are, we have a chaplain talking about how she works with families through their crises of faith or helps counsel families as they're going through this. Um, and we're going to be interviewing uh, Dr. Julie Hauer, who um, specializes in pain and symptom management for severely neurologically impaired children. Um, because pain management is a big issue when the children can't communicate. And, uh, so we're going to be, and I know it's a big issue for parents who are reluctant to, to over-medicate their kids, but at the same time don't want their parents' children to be physically suffering. So we're going to be interviewing her specifically about that. Um, so we want your thoughts, really. Like, that's the only way this gets, this happens, is more and more and more input from you. Um, okay, another, shall we watch another one? Do we have time? Which one? San Filippo. San Filippo? Okay. We had a shared philosophy, which I think made a lot of decisions, much 
easier in that we wanted, we always looked at any kind of intervention with one basic question is, is this going to benefit his quality of life or our family's quality of life? And we framed every decision around that. So it wasn't, should he have this surgery? Should he have this intervention? Should he have this test? We were always asking doctors, well, what are the tests going to tell you? What did, here's one answer, here's the other answer. Well, what are you going to do about it? And if there was nothing that was going to be done, regardless of what the answer would be, we would say, well, then we don't need the test. For example, we you know, eventually stopped giving Ben swallow studies because we knew his swallowing was going away. The study was only telling us that. It was only giving, quite frankly, school systems ammunition to why he couldn't do something instead of us, which is he can still do something. And so we just stopped, we stopped having them. There wasn't, there wasn't a purpose that was making his life better, um, unless we wanted to choose a feeding tube. And that's a different conversation than just a swallow study. I mean, we knew he was aspirating. We knew we needed to puree everything. We knew we needed to modify how we were feeding him. <coughs> More importantly, him to have to go through that. So, thoughts on that? Yes? Well, I thank you very much for coming up from Boston to share this uh, resource with us. It's really powerful, and I have, uh, Nina and I were just talking, we each probably have at least a handful of families that we'll be sharing this with. Yeah. Um, one of the questions I have is, um, we often wind up in ethical dilemmas because what we look at for best interest standard what's best for a child varies so much from parent to parent mm -hmm. or provider to provider. Yeah. And one of the bigger challenges that I've faced with families is when the provider team yeah. so strongly disagrees yeah. about what's best for a child. And I'm wondering if you had any amongst videos themselves. amongst themselves when the oh. critical care doc disagrees with the primary care doc, who disagrees with the neurologist, who disagrees with the nurse, who disagrees with, you know, when the team itself can't come together, because you're in the gray zone, you're in an area yeah. where there is no right answer. And I'm wondering if you had any videos to help families navigate that really tricky scenario of when your medical team disagrees about the care that you're being asked to provide. So um, we, have, we do have some families talk about that. In fact, I think the... Um, the Ben and Jennifer and Stuart, because there was some disconnect. Um, one of the one of his specialists wanted surgery, and the other um, wanted spinal surgery, and the other specialist didn't. Didn't. Um, I'm just gonna say that's when you bring in palliative care because that's what they are really good at. They help negotiate the team, and how do they do that? Is they help get everybody to think about what the family's core goals and values are. I mean, this is all stuff you know. Um, so, but it's, it's, so why are we doing that? Like, to what end? Yes, it may fix his spine, but if you fix his spine, what's, what are the other things that are going to happen? Because oftentimes, um, and I have never been in these meetings, but I have been told, um, 
the, the specialists are working in their silos, and I'm responsible for this, and I'm responsible for this, and I'm responsible for this, but the whole child is a whole system, and at the end of the day, what is best for that whole child in the context of that whole child's family, right? Um, so sometimes it comes back to the family um, and the palliative care doctor helping them figure that out. It is, I will tell you, it's impossible and brutal for a family to be in that situation. We do have um, a section ca called um, Navigating the Hospital. And in it, there's a, it's a conversation between a mom whose son was died from a rare blood disorder at Mass General who is now a parent advocate at Mass General and runs the coordinated care clinic there, and a hospital chaplain who, at the time, who had been her daughter's, her son's, her, her chaplain, and, and now works at another hospital. And they talk about how, how to help families move through the hospital, which is obviously like a foreign land, um, although this is a very nice foreign land. Um, but, uh, and also what it mean, how to help families. The mom particularly talks about what happens when you're getting different information from different specialists and you don't want to alienate your doctors, but you're upset because they don't, they're not talking to each other and you don't know what you're supposed to do and who you're supposed to listen to. And so they just provide, you know, ask for the team meeting. You know, they, she doesn't actually say get palliative care in the room, but, um, I, I, this is not very helpful, I'm sorry, because it's so complicated. It's, it's very complicated. And I do think, you know, whether it's somebody from your ethics team or palliative care, um, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's pediatric palliative care or adult palliative, it's all the same skill set, just helping really core ground and thinking about the big picture. Um, and then it's, an, it's as much of an art as a science, so... And we don't, we're not future tellers. And I think that's one of the things that parents really wrestle with is they don't understand why you guys can't tell them that, how this is going to go. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that you can help them understand that you are, you care deeply about their child and their child's well-being and their family's well-being, and you are hoping that this is going to get, but, but we can't, we don't always know how this is going to go down. I think if you can repeat that message over and over again, eventually it'll sink in. Um, I think it's really important for them to know that you're not magicians or, um, you know, future tell for fortune tellers. Um, you had a question? Um, I was thinking about the video on the, the Rare Siblings Network about a uh, <coughs> small house filled with, with mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you have any videos that address um, the challenge of a family with multiple kids and very low income, where the decision is whether or not to use resources to keep alive um, a seriously ill child as compared to uh, providing other care to the other children? No. The boy who's talking about that is in a family, a tiny house in Springfield, Mass. His sister has one of three bedrooms. There are n nine children in the family. It is a very, very loving home. Very loving. They had a child, another child, after their, the child who has this leukodystrophy. And um, we do not talk about it. Um, 
I mean, I, what I saw was that none of these children were actually suffering because there was a lot of love and care being given to them in a small space. Um, uh, I saw all of the kids. Um, but I know that's not always the case. And again, you're, you have a really hard job because I'm, I know you see a lot of things that are very confusing. Um, but I'm sorry, right now we don't have anything on that. I don't know if we ever will. I might not want to touch that one. We've <laughs> <laughs> heard the invitation. Like, we'll be here for more questions and comments. Please pick up her card. Thank you.